again. Uh, Pastor Kyle was out of town this week. We hope Kyle and your family are sure having a great time. Have a good week away. Get some rest. And we love you and we miss you. And we hope you come back soon. All right, I'm ready to get to work. Are you? Amen. Some of us are. Let's get to work. Okay, First Corinthians chapter 6. Chapter 6. We've been going through a study in 1 Corinthians called the Christ-Centered Church. And so we're going to continue that this week and start in chapter 6, verse 1 through 11. And today's focus is going to be on Christ-centered judgment. Christ-centered judgment. Now, I'm going to give you a preface. I tend to do this. Alright? Judgment is simply a conclusion that is drawn. You follow me? We got that? Judgment and what we're talking about today is a conclusion drawn. Christ-centered judgment. If you're at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, say, I'm there. If you ain't, say, hold up. Alright, good deal. We're all there. Chapter 6, verse 1, Paul opens up and says this, If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, Brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers. As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. And you do this to brothers and sisters. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, males who lay with males, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Pray with me one more time. Fathers, we've read your word. God, I pray that you would speak to us clearly about how to apply these things to us. How do we judge correctly in a Christ-centered fashion? How do we handle conflict? How do we handle argument in a way that honors you and does not take away from the gospel? God, give us a godly perspective and remind us of our own sin that was paid for by the same blood that was shed for others. We love you and we praise you. So Jesus, I'm going to pray. Amen. Here, Paul is talking to the church in Corinth. And let me just tell you, these people are messed up. Alright? We came from chapter 5, where there was blatant sin. We had talked about last week. Blatant sin. Open sin being performed by a particular person in the church that the church decided not to do anything about. Did not correct. Did not speak out against did not excommunicate, did not do anything to hold up the standard by which we are to live. Right? And so we've got that going on. But at the same time, you've got what Paul calls 
trivial cases, right? Small stuff, where people are suing brothers and sisters in secular courts over them. You see the bipolar position that they're in. They will not call sin, sin, and correct a brother whom they claim to love in the name of a God they love, but yet they will sue a brother and sister over me, myself, and I. It's the same selfish, prideful problem we've seen in the past few chapters of the church in Corinth. And so Paul, he deals harshly with these people. I want to point out a couple of different things this morning that Paul tends to focus on. Three different things that Paul tends to focus on. And first is improper judgment. Improper judgment. Again, I said these people went from not even being able to rebuke sin to directly suing a brother and sister over trivial things that don't matter. This is improper judgment. But at the same time, at the same time, there's two breakdowns of this improper judgment. Not only do they improperly judge someone else's sin, but they're also also not only or not even properly judging their own part. You follow what I'm saying? Let me let me give you an example. In, in chapter five, someone else is the focus of who's doing wrong. There is someone else who is performing a blatant open sin. In chapter five, the church refused to do anything about their sin and essentially became cowards and apathetic towards the standard that we're supposed to live up to. This holy people that we are supposed to be. In other words, there was no stance for the gospel. You follow where I'm at there? Alright? In chapter 6, the individual being spoken to is the one who is doing wrong. You follow me? You see the difference? In chapter 5, it was somebody else doing the wrong. In chapter 6, Paul says it's us who are doing wrong. And instead of judging themselves rightly, they chose to lash out at other people. Paul says, you do wrong and you cheat. But yet, instead of being allowed to be called out on our sin, we charge people with a lawsuit over small personal issues. The cases are taken to worldly, secular judges. Rather than going to the authority of Scripture to settle an issue, the church was not involved at all in these cases. And therefore, again, there was no stance for the Gospel. Now, Jake, why on earth are you talking about people going to court and how does that apply to us? I've never sued nobody. Alright, let me just be extremely clear. Can I do that? Can I be extremely clear? We may not take people to court or file a lawsuit against them, but tell me if this sounds familiar. So-and-so did something I don't like. So I'm going to go grab a collection of my peers and plead my case in front of them so that they will judge the same way I do so that action can be had by somebody that I think has authority to do something so that I get what I want. Does that sound familiar? Does that not also sound like a court case? <clears throat> Pleading a case before a group of peers in, in order to persuade them to judge a situation in the way that I see it so that I get what I feel I deserve. We may not file a lawsuit and we may not take people to court but we often, often judge people in the same ways which is a worldly way of dealing with an issue. So if this is the case, if this is the case, whether we are the one that was 
uh, done wrong or we did the wrong thing, how should we then handle these issues? How should we handle these issues? Well, in Matthew chapter 18, we're told how to handle the issue of someone else's sin. Some, something similar to what may have happened in chapter 5 that we talked about. Matthew 18, 15 through 20 says this, If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he won't listen, Take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, then tell the church. And if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, I truly, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. How are we to deal with the situation of someone else's sin like we would see in chapter 5? How do we judge correctly? A few things we're told by Christ to do is to go talk to them. Go talk to them not go talk to my peers, not go talk to my pastor, not go talk to my Sunday school teacher, not go talk to a trustee, not go talk to whoever. Talk to them and tell them their fault. Why? Why would we go and talk to them? It's important to understand that the purpose behind talking to the one who has wronged you is for reconciliation. For reconciliation. He says in Matthew, Go tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've won a brother. You've won a prize. You have won your brother. You have reconciled a relationship. This is going to become important later. But too often we go to someone else if we decide to be courageous and bold enough to go talk to them about their sin to correct them. And not to reconcile us. You see the difference? Too often we go to them and we'll say, you are wrong without the intention of reconciling with them. You see what I'm saying? You look lost. Talk to me. Are you good? Alright. I want to make sure, because let me, let me be extremely clear. We don't do this well. So I'm trying to be very clear and very particular about what we're talking about here. Too often, we will go in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, and we'll say, you're wrong for this, this, and this, but then leave it there without the purpose of winning a brother or sister. Here Jesus says, if someone has sinned against you, go to them, tell them their fault, and if they listen, you've won a brother. If they don't listen, go take two or more with you for the same reason. Go tell them their fault. And if they listen, you've won a brother. And if they still don't listen, tell the church so that if they'll listen, you've won a brother. But if they don't, if they don't, 
treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector among you. Multiple attempts to, in order to reconcile a relationship. The purpose is reconciliation. The sole reason, the sole reason we go to the person that we are judging correctly or incorrectly is for reconciliation. Everybody good at that? Alright? Not that we just go one time and say, well, I did my part. There is multiple attempts. Multiple attempts and multiple hands. You go yourself that doesn't work, then you go take two or more with you. This is what Jesus says. This is not me making this up. Jesus says take two or more with you and go try again. Kind of point back to when the disciples asked Jesus, how many times am I to forgive someone? And he says, seven times seventy. Right? Forgive again and again and again. Show grace again, again, and again in order to win a brother. Alright, so that's how we're supposed to deal with someone else's sin. How do we deal with conflict when somebody comes and tells us our sin? How do we deal with somebody who comes and tells us our sin? Well, in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 23, Jesus has been talking about anger. About anger and hatred. And then it seems as if he takes a tangent in the middle of talking about anger and hatred. And he says in verse 23, So, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift and go to be reconciled with your brother or sister. Once that's complete, then come offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your opponent, with your adversary, while you're on the way with him to the court. Or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out of there until you've paid the last penny. How do we deal with conflict when someone else is sinning against us? We go to them for the purpose of reconciliation. How do we deal with when I have sinned and someone has pointed it out to me, I go to the one I've sinned against for reconciliation. You see the difference? The two opposite sides? I'm pointing this out because here's what I often hear. Well, they're supposed to come to me. Come on, Pastor. I don't have to go to them. They're supposed to come to me. I didn't do anything wrong. In both situations, God says, you go. Doesn't give any stipulation. Doesn't give any circumstance outside of this is of utmost importance. Did you notice what the context was there? The person was at the altar offering sacrifice for their sin. And God said, if you remember there that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift. Don't offer it. Leave it. We put this in context. This would have been said to people who would have traveled days journey. Could have been a few days of a journey to go and offer a sacrifice. And God says, if you've traveled this far to offer a sacrifice, 
and you remember that your brother has something against you, you've wronged someone, or someone sees that you've wronged them, leave your gift and go to them. So it would be like two or three days travel to go give a sacrifice. Oh dang, I did something wrong. I've got to go back two or three days and make this right. And then when I'm done, two or three days and I'll go make my sacrifice. It's of utmost importance. Of utmost importance. But he didn't give a stipulation on when to go outside of when you remember you've wronged someone. Someone has something against you. You are to go. When someone has wronged you, you are to go. Not when they realize it. Not when I've got all my, my stuff together so I can make my case. Not when, when I've come up with the best defense to make up for what I've done. I go when I remember that there is conflict. It is of utmost importance and it is urgent. You follow where I'm at so far? This is proper judgment. And I love how at the end of the passage we read in Matthew 5, that he points out to, to come to a, uh, a conclusion, come to reconciliation quickly. Because if you don't, then your opponent will turn you into the judge. The judge will turn you into the prison and you will not leave there until you've paid the last penny. He's making a comparison here and a contrast here. Of if you'll go and you'll make things right quickly, the penalty is cheaper than if you harbor hard feelings and judgment and do it later. If you'll go quickly and deal with things now, the penalty is cheaper than if you wait until it's too late. You follow what I'm saying? Now why is, that, why is that important to point out? Most of us, if we're honest, myself included, do not go to people we have conflict with because we think it's going to cost too much. Well, it's going to be embarrassing. There are people around. Or it's going to be painful. I could be wrong. What do you mean to tell me? They're going to tell me I'm wrong in front of everybody else? That's too much. He gives a comparison and says that's cheaper. It's a cheaper cost to pay than to harbor hard feelings until you sit before the judge. And we'll talk about why that is in just a minute. How do we deal with conflict in a proper way. We don't take it before worldly wisdom, before we uh, adhere to Scripture. We go to Scripture, which tells us if someone has wronged me, I go to that person in order to reconcile and win a brother. If I have wronged someone and I know this, then I am to go to that person and ask forgiveness to reconcile and win a brother. And whatever the cost there is to do that, better for me to pay that cost than to lose a brother. Second thing Paul focuses on is a proper perspective. A proper perspective. In verse 7, he says, as it is to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated instead of having legal disputes? Why is it a loss for us to have legal disputes or in our case, those peer-reviewed disputes. Well, these disputes point out our sinful selfishness and pride. The truth of it is, when we have these 
disputes, arguments, these moments where we go to our peers and judge other people to get people to do what we want, when these things happen, it points to the fact that we disbelieve at some level what God says is true. Right? You follow me? God says to do these things and you will win a brother. Oftentimes we don't do that because we think there's no hope to win a brother. Right? So we have disputes. God says that if you will adhere to my word, you will live in peace together. We don't do that because we don't always get what we want. We don't believe that there's peace to be had. You follow what I'm saying? There's a point to a lack of disbelief when we have these silly, trivial disputes. Using worldly wisdom. In other words, judging the same way the world does, rather than using scriptural authority, shows a lack of trust in God. We say that God's word is good and perfect and is, is profitable for teaching and reproof, and yet we don't use it when we need it. Right? Now, why is all that important? Well, the world sees this. You know, we don't live in a private, uh, in a private setting all the time. As Christians and even as a church as a whole, we don't live in a private setting all the time. There is always, always someone looking through the window of our home to see what happens in there. Right? Someone is always looking through the window of our home to see what's happening in there. People know. The community knows when there's conflict in a church. Do you know that? Don't believe me, go and ask somebody about conflict in a church. I'll tell you about that. Yep. Right? That there was a time, even for us as Grace Baptist Church, where the, the community knew we had conflict. Yep. It's true. People talk about conflict in churches. And let me be clear when there's conflict in churches that are not resolved in biblical ways. It hinders the gospel. Amen. Amen. It hinders the gospel. It renders us totally ineffective for the gospel. You might as well cut off your feet. You might as well cut off your hands. You might as well not speak. When conflict inside the body becomes more important to people than the gospel, you're a hindrance and not a help. And the community knows it. Now listen to me. I don't know about any conflict going on right now. Okay? So those of you that are trying to figure out what conflict I'm talking about, stop. I don't know about that. Alright? I love you. But this is the, the text that I was given to deal with. And it's important that we deal with. Okay? Proper perspective. Too often we're focused on our own selfish wants and needs. James 4, 1-6 through 6 tells us, What's the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire what you don't have. You murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and you wage war and you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people. 
Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, uh, God says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Our conflicts, these silly disputes that I'm speaking of, come from our own sinful desires. That's all. In other words, if there is conflict, conflict present, there is sin present somewhere. Okay? We get on that? Yep. If there's conflict present, there is sin present somewhere. And most likely, it's on both sides of the conflict. So he says, have a proper perspective. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated than to have these silly disputes? In other words, why not just be the bigger person? I used to hate that phrase. I really did. I used to hate it, didn't you? It, it, it always seemed to come at the wrong time. When you were upset at someone and you just knew you were right, you know, and somebody would look at you and just say, hey, man, just be the bigger person. Really? But here Paul really says, why would we not rather be wronged? Why would we not rather to be cheated rather than to have silly disputes over silly trivial things? For the sake of the gospel's furtherance. Why not be the bigger person? Why not be like God that we claim and forgive and show grace? What better way to display the gospel in you than to give grace, undeserved grace, proper perspective. But... Here's what the world typically sees. Going back to Matthew 18 again. Jesus tells a story about an unforgiving servant. Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive a brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I'll tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven cannot be compared to a king or can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle accounts, one who owed him, owed him 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay his debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me. I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him of the total loan. The servant then went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and started choking him and said, pay what you owe. And at this, his fellow servant fell down and begged him, be patient with me, I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went through the servant into the prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and summoned him, his master said, or, excuse me, I'm sorry. Went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked servant, 
I forgive you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Man. Servant owed 10,000 men. Great debt. Debt he could not pay. Master says, you know what? Since you can't pay, you, your wife, your children, and everything you own will be sold so that you can pay back your debt. And he falls face first in front of his master. He says, oh, master, please forgive me. I'll pay you back everything. Be patient with me. Have mercy on me because of his position. Because of his attitude towards the master, the master had compassion. He says, I'll forgive you the whole loan. Forgive the whole loan. Go and, and be free. You're forgiven totally. And then immediately, the servant walks out the doors of the master's house and finds a fellow servant, a servant of the same master who owes him a hundred in there. And he chokes him. He throws him in jail. And will not let him out until he pays the last penny. That's what the world sees more often than anything. Yeah, we may have great worship services where we can sing great songs. We may preach really good messages. Teach really good Sunday school lessons on Sunday morning. In the presence of the Master. But too often... Far too often, there are conflicts that are not handled with forgiveness and grace. And the world sees this. Us choking a brother, <coughs> judging a sister, holding them accountable to what we say we deserve, rather than showing the same grace and forgiveness we were just shown. That's anti-gospel. Jesus says, because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers so that he would be tortured until he could pay everything that he owed. So also, also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or his sister from his heart. Pointing also back to when Jesus said, forgive or, we, or I will not forgive you. Right? Forgive, or I will not forgive you. Forgiveness is the gospel. We, too often our perspective changes from where we were to where we are, and we forget the forgiveness and grace we were shown. It don't take that long to forget. It don't take that long to forget. Oftentimes on Monday morning or even Sunday lunch, Christians forget grace. Mm. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people who work in fast food, <laughs> yeah, even fast food, or a restaurant, or a store, or a gas station who hate Sunday afternoons because church people are mean. Church people don't tip. Church people complain. 
church people fight. That's what the world sees. And conflict over trivial things is not handled correctly. And it's all done in the name of Jesus. Proper perspective is to say, I would rather be wronged. I would rather somebody wrong me greatly, cheat me, steal everything that I have, than for me to be the one that portrays that. And I hope that you will be with me on that. So how do we how do we fix it? How do we how do we walk away from improper judgment to gain a proper perspective? The answer is the gospel. It's just simply the gospel. Paul uses some examples that are familiar to the Corinthians in verse 9 through 11. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, no idolaters, no adulterers, no males who, who lay with males, no thieves, no greedy people, no drunkards, no verbally abusive people, <laughs> listen to that one, or, or swindlers, none of them will inherit the kingdom of God. There's news for us, folks. That's all of us. That's all of us. We may not be able to claim all of those things, but it is absolutely true that we all fit in one of those categories. At the very least, we used to be idolaters. And some of you, Paul said, used to be like this. But, it's my favorite words in the English language. Not B-U-T-T, alright? Let's be real. But, B-U-T. But. This is true, but. You used to be one of these. But. You were washed. You were sanctified. Amen. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. That is the gospel. Romans 3.23 says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means all of us were unrighteous. All of us fit in the category of those who would not inherit the kingdom of God. But we were washed. We were wiped clean. As if it wasn't there. Spotless. How? By the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 19, 13 and 14, or 9, 13 and 14 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, to cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. You and I were unrighteous, faulty, disgusting sinners who were washed by the blood of a sinless Savior. Washed, wiped clean, as if it was never there. You were sanctified to make righteous or holy, to be put in a status of right with 
God? How does that work? How does, how does that happen? In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul says, May the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are totally, completely sanctified when we're washed with His blood and covered by His righteousness, which makes us justified, legally acquitted of all charges. Legally acquitted of all charges that we were guilty of. Romans 3, 23-26 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him at the mercy seat by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His restraint... God passed over the sins that we previously committed. God presented Him to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so that we would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. How do we escape improper judgment, silly arguments and fights that pollute the gospel in order to get a proper perspective it's through the gospel. You and I are no better than the one that we have problems with. And they are not better than me. We are on an even playing field. That means my opinion doesn't matter more than you. My training in the scripture does not make me more important than you. Nor does yours against me. We are all equally Loved and cherished by the God who paid our debt. Who are we to fight over silly things? Who, who are we to even have the umption to say, I think this? We're nobody. We're nothing without Him. The only good in me is the good that is Him. Amen. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Church, you hear it often. You hear it often. Now, I'm pleading with you. I'm pleading with you. Though I may not be uh, privy to conflict, here's one thing I know about people. There is always conflict. Is that fair? There's always conflict. It's never not going to be around because we're imperfect people. We still sin. Amen? Amen. Any, any other sinners still left around here? Yeah? yeah? Okay, good. We're not alone. If that's the case, where sin abounds, conflict abounds. Alright? Where there is sin, there is conflict. And so there's conflict here. Whether it's between you and another person in this room or you and another person who believes in Christ, there is conflict between you and a brother or sister. If if I'm guessing right. And we are commanded. We're not pleaded with. We're not asked. We're not even encouraged. We're commanded. Can you say commanded? Commanded. Oh, hold on. Come on now. Commanded. Commanded. That's better. That means he said, I done told you. 
Go reconcile. Go reconcile. Whether I have to ask for forgiveness or I need to plead with somebody to correct something, I'm going for reconciliation for the sake of the gospel. So I don't know what that conflict may be for you or if you have conflict at the moment. But here's what I'm pleading with you. I'm begging you that if you have some conflict in this room, go reconcile now. If you feel like somebody's wronged you, go to them now. This will take more, more courage. If you've wronged someone, go to them now. If we're going to be a cross-centered church, focused on, on the gospel being presented to those that desperately need Him, we got to sell some stuff. we got to do it now. We're not promised tomorrow. Nor are they. Everybody on board? So, bands will come. They're going to play. They're going to sing about the gospel. Maybe, maybe you're there and you don't have conflict. Maybe you, you are right as far as you know with the people that are around you that are your brothers and sisters. Man, here, here's my, my call to you. Just appreciate the gospel. Appreciate God's goodness and His grace towards you and sing and praise. And maybe you're one who doesn't know Jesus, but you've seen conflict in churches. And you've asked those questions. Is this God really what He says He is? Because all I see is His people fighting. Let me tell you clearly, God is exactly who He says He is. We are hypocrites, and there's room for another one if you want to meet Him. I would love to introduce you to the saving blood of Jesus. But again, church, if there's conflict, don't wait. Don't wait. Go now. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word and your direction. God, I pray. I ask that your spirit would be here, that you would convict hearts. You would do work here that only you can do. God, that you would take people, brother and sister, and you would reconcile those conflicts for the sake of the gospel. God, that you would, you would soften our hearts to our own sin that we would ask for forgiveness when necessary. And God, help us to appreciate Your grace more than we already have. God, be glorified in whatever happens. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
We really love it. And I want you to remember to look at your bulletins, pay attention to some stuff that's going on. We don't want you to miss out on everything God's doing here. All right? So do that for me. Use your giving boxes in the back if you haven't already. Remember as we love God. Good? Yep. Sweet. Thank you. Love God. Serve others. And show grace this week. We love you. We'll see you soon. Amen. Thank you.